friends and welcome to mandatory redistribution party i'm sean morley and i friends i'm jack evans this episode is about economic myths cognitive dissonance surrounding political violence and the biggest coin in human history one of the key ideas of liberalism the dominant ideology of capitalist society is just don't take stuff don't break stuff they're like uh, two key pillars there both of these things are quote violence end quote but they sort of forget about the violence used to establish and maintain the current relations which absolutely pickles your brain And our dominant ideology is one of gratitude towards our Patreon subscribers. So if you want to chuck us one of your gigantic coins and unlock a grab bag of bits of stuff, then you can find us on patreon.com slash mandatory redistribution party. Another type of coin is social capital. And we love it when you share episodes on social media. So why not do so on Twitter or perhaps by starting a chain mail to your estranged uncle? Thank you for sharing our content. We respect and appreciate you. Cool. Uh, you ready to get started? You got a coin for the podcast meter? Yeah, lad, here it is. Can you, yeah. oh, can you give me a hand? Yeah, I got it. Here we go. Oh, it's a big one. Come on. Have you, you, you got a grip on this? Have you got a grip on this? Yeah, I've got it on the side. Just what? Okay, I've just no. put it a little bit. Whoa, 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 whoa. It's too much of me. It's gone. It's gone. It's gone. Oh! I'm sorry. God. What do you think? about the size of money. <laughs> I want it to be bigger. I want, um, like, doubloons. Well, I actually don't know how big a doubloon is, but in my head, a doubloon is about two inches wide. <laughs> two inches wide. <laughs> Which it definitely isn't. It's definitely really small. Because with currency that was made out of actual gold and silver is really small. But I just like the idea of big chunky coins. But that'd be like a like a slammer, like a pog slammer. That's what you want. You want to be traded slammers. I think coins should be much more I hate paper money. Get fucked with all that. All money should just be coins. There should be a twenty pound coin, fifty pound coin. I've never actually seen a fifty pound note. And do you think they should get bigger? As they mm. as they increase yeah. in value, yeah, yeah, yeah. So a fifty pound coin is like fifteen centimeters big. Wait, it should be. You should still be able to get it in your pocket. So wait, I've, I've got a tape measure here. You know what? My pocket's actually fifteen centimeters at the entrance. Fifteen centimeters, your pocket. It's a big pocket for a big coin. Yeah, but that's like a rare coin. Your generic coins could be up to bit the pound and two pound and penny. You know, from the the generic coins you're going to have in already in coin form, they can be upped 20%, I would say. And it'll stop inflation as well, because people will be like, that's worth more. And then, uh, (laughs) maybe not. (laughs) Don't email me. Ban all um, Bitcoin and digital money, and you can only have chonker coins. It'll stop executive pay as well. You know, pockets aren't really that equipped for coins anyway. <laughs> I'd say the coin pouch coming back to it to accommodate uh, larger coins could be all right. Coin pouch is good, yeah. Yeah, much better than a wallet. Little pouch, always better. Bum bag, big fan of a bum bag. 
But wallets don't accommodate coins. No, they're awful for it. Yeah. I like a wallet with a little, a little, uh, little tiny pouch. This is the, by the way, this is the men's equivalent of women talking about pockets. I realize we have pocket privilege, so we shouldn't yeah. be complaining. However, inside wallets versus a purse or handbag, which is socialized to not be man items, they don't have a coin zone. Mm. And I once got berated by one of my uncles for having a wallet with a little uh, section for coins. Said, Berated? Is, yeah, yeah. Well, you got, you got a purse there. You know, some like weird, yeah. you know, uncle comment. And it feels like coins coins are for women then, right? Because they're given... Yeah, is that the implication? They're, they're socialised. should have said to him. Yeah, they're socialised yeah. to have like a coin area uh-huh. where we're supposed to have like folded paper. That's the actual explanation maybe that would be purported by like um, Milton Friedman for the, the pay gap. It's not actually to do with value of labour. Maybe it's explained by the carrying They've got devices. nowhere to put a note, so we've got, got nowhere to, to put a note, so yeah, we've got to pay <laughs> yeah. coins, which doesn't even make <laughs> sense if you think yeah, about it. Yeah, we're them halfway, actually. <laughs> well, can I tell you about the largest coin sure. ever used? Uh-huh. It came in at 3.6 metres across. Fucking hell! Whoa! I didn't. I wasn't ambitious at all. That's a big coin, right? That's an absolute unit. The state of that. It was so big that they wouldn't move. People wouldn't move it when it changed owners. Is that a coin? Is that still a coin? What do you mean? It's round and it's used as uh, an item of value. Yeah. For, okay. But it, it, but it, I think a coin should move because then otherwise, what you're going to do is instead of moving the coin, you're going to write down on a bit of paper, this represents the coin on the bit of paper, and then you're going to swap that bit of paper. You're going to say, listen, the coin's too big. What I'm calling in my wrecked head, I'm calling this a coin, but I actually can't give it you, which I would be able to do with a real coin. So we're going to have to write down on this bit of paper, this is the coin. The coin is yours now, and sign over the coin to you. And then the coin will stay in my back garden, but it's actually yours. Nah, that's not a coin. Then the, the the true function of the coin is being performed by the piece of paper. Well, what if there's no piece of paper and rather than tell you you own a stand-in for the coin, like uh-huh. a coin dummy, I tell everyone else this coin is Jack's. What, you just ring a bell? Yeah. Do like a town well, let's cry. Say the coin's Jack's now. I tag ding, everyone. Ding, ding. I do a, I do a CC in. all. Yeah. yeah, that's the ta- yeah, town crier is tag all. Yeah, and rather than being my rather than being in my garden, it's just in the woods. Yeah, again, still not a coin. This you're not convincing me. This is a coin. I think a coin should be able to change hands. Well, it could change hands. It's just it's no, three it's point point six meters across. It, it can. But you and me agree. It's just yeah, it's not too worth big. it. Yeah, it's just not worth it. Imagine me and you live together. Yeah, and you want not a coin, but you want my wardrobe. Right. Or no, you want a chair in the living room, right? You want a chair in the living room. You realise the, the point of that example pretty Yeah, quickly. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm moving this. I'm moving the goalpost immediately. You want a chair in the living room. Yeah. Right? And then I go, okay, I will give you the chair. You can have the chair now. I doesn't yeah. need to go anywhere. Okay. Does it? Well, no. Yeah, but this is not... You've created... Uh, you've gone, okay... The coin, I can't, the big giant coin, I can't actually justify why it's a coin. So I'll make up a complete other scenario that makes sense and pretend that that is equivalent to the fucking chonk coin, which you've won because I am referring to it as a coin. So, you Mm. know, 
ultimately you win. Yeah, you've won the logical argument, but I've won the linguistic argument because I've introduced <laughs> it as a coin. <laughs> I'm trapped in your frame. This is why you never accept your enemy's frame, listeners. I think it almost certainly isn't a coin. I think I do actually uh, agree with uh, you. But if you look up the rye stones, it is regarded almost in all the literature as a currency. Uh-huh. Even though it's just a big disc that never really moved, it had this property where... So just to give this some context, these coins are like native to the island of Yap, which is like a mm-hmm. Pacific island. They were used in like the 19th century, and they were kind of made en masse when like colonist traders came round and helped them quarry up loads of limestone. So they made massive ones because they could. Mm. Um, and then they were too big to move. So they ended up in this position <laughs> where there were these very large discs which were considered very valuable, uh-huh. precious, uh-huh. but they weren't moved and people would like communicate it changed owner through like oral communication oral updates and the thing is these rye stones got massively fetishized by the likes of milton freeman who actually wrote a paper to say these coins prove that fiat currency is like baked into our blood yeah right because because he's doing a couple of things one is there's this kind of fetishization of like tribal societies as though that tells us what the unblemished version of humanity is. This isn't a fucking tribal site. You said yourself it was they developed this because of colonialism. Exactly. No anthropologist has ever been able to find a fucking barter economy that is the thing that supposedly predates the emergence of currency because currency, which is this thing that is uh, a means of exchange and a holder of value. That, as you, you've mentioned Friedman and it's in it, I'm already enraged just at the yeah. mention of the guy so basically you got Adam Smith the granddaddy of modern economics and he basically supposes he doesn't it isn't empirical he supposes he goes well currency must have developed to replace barter because barter would be inconvenient and it gives all these examples of barter of like oh if I had a chicken and you had a shoe and we wanted to exchange these things we couldn't just keep exchanging chickens and shoes and increasingly complex things we need something that is a universal holder of value and a universal means of exchange that that should be a currency and the rationale for currency which is something that develops alongside capitalism really uh, not to get really into the weeds but even under feudalism yes there would be currencies but they would be far less widespread because loads of people did not necessarily work for a wage the idea that you rent your body and mind and then get paid for it i.e wage labor is a very capitalist thing hence the working class the only way you can make money is by selling your labor Uh, whereas under feudalism there's not good, but different kinds of exploitation that don't necessarily require a necessitate currency. But that one of the rationales for currency is that it exists as a solution to the problem of barter, but the problem of barter, barter has never been empirically demonstrated by any anthropologist. They've never found it. But economists carry on as if that is the thing that currency is solving and project their delusions about why currency exists onto the past to justify their arguments about today, which is ultimately what economics is and what Milton Friedman and all his fucking acolytes and Hayek and Nozick and all these pricks do. They perform the function organised religion performed in feudalism, which is upholding, rationalising, justifying a system of exploitation, even down to a future mystical reward for your actions now. But instead of heaven, it's an even fucking harder. You you might you you might become a billionaire. So just to like 
pick that up and go with it. So Milton Friedman, if we've never covered him, he was like he was like the intellectual architect of like the Reagan and Thatcher administration. He is the market fundamentalist who like set things going in the 80s. Pinochet as well. Don't forget Pinochet. And so what he's looking for here is like, we've moved on to fiat currency. He wants to talk about the Federal Reserve and he wants to talk about this idea that currency is somehow like part of the state of nature for human beings. And he's found these stones and he wants to say that trusting in something like that is cooked into human nature because a tribal society has done it. But also, they're not coins. And when you really dig, you can find, ah, these were part of something called a gift economy. And the reason you know they're part of a gift economy is because you can't Mm. move them, right? So if someone goes, I've given this to you, it's kind of a, a holding place before that person then does something for you at some point mm. and you go, you can have this uh, stone back, which is useful because it's by ne- your house. <laughs> it's right next to your house. So the fact that they were so huge mm, mm. and that they were unwieldy actually lent to them being gifts for each other because it would always come back around because that's the nature of a community-based gift economy. But a gift economy doesn't necessarily have to mean that. Like a gift economy can mean providing something or some service or for someone without expecting anything back that's the that's the ultimate way gift economy because barter is premised upon the only reason he would do anything is because of some form of exchange whereas a gift economy says no fuck exchange because it's a gift you shouldn't give a gift with expectation of something in return that's why it's a gift economy it fits with a pattern of constantly projecting onto the past to justify the present because the reason the rye stones have come up again now is because loads of people are calling it the original bitcoin yeah i could feel that for about the last 15 minutes in my gut (laughs) people going around going this now belongs this person on the island of yap that is the original blockchain but that, that's one of the things with like Bitcoin fervor is that they're like these irreplicable things. That It's like the anti-fiat currency, right? It has some, in their view, mm. innate value that is not in the hands of uh, a state and is just this currency that exists across borders when, of course, states are very, very important to the construction of other currencies um, and markets. You know, markets can't exist without states to enforce them and state violence to enforce them, which is what's underneath everything. Those ideas about currency and 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 barter are like central myths of capitalist economics because what they don't want to admit is that they are just people who think of elaborate, scientific-sounding apologies for things as they are now. They have to insist that what they're doing is a science and that what they think they're doing is revealing a permanent truth, like a law of nature. You know, like they talk Mm. about like the law of supply and demand, for example, as if it's like Newtonian physics. And then, I mean, well, again, Newtonian physics, other people came along later and went, actually, Newton was wrong about a whole bunch of stuff and we need to adjust this because that's what science is. Science is a process of constantly critically reflecting upon your understanding of things and basically constant skepticism and doubt and constant change. It isn't Mm. an innate truth. It's annoying when scientists do it who are actual scientists. It's even more annoying when economists do it, when they're making up fucking mathematical equations to try to distill complex human decisions 
down to numbers in ways that don't even make any fucking sense. Like supply and demand, right, is supposed to describe a way that the market rations things to the people who need it most. But it doesn't ration things to the people who need it most. It rations things to the people who need money. Here's your mainstream capitalist economics 101. Distribution of stuff is based on supply, how much stuff there is, and demand, who wants stuff, and how much they want stuff. The key assumption of supply and demand is that if the people get the things they want, their demand for those things is gonna go down because they've got it now. And if people are deprived of the things they want, their demand for those things will go up because they don't have the thing they want. And that determines how they are distributed, what goes where and to whom. But is that how that works? Is that, is that how people are? Like, do rich people actually want less when they get more rich and they accrue more things? They start living more frugally when that happens? Because to me, I think, I think the opposite is true. And poor people, do they start wanting stuff more as they get poor? Or is the opposite true? Do they adjust their mindset and learn how to live and want within their means? In 1944, a public health survey was taken in Calcutta directly following the Bengal famine. That's the one Churchill did that killed three million people. And it asked, what is your health like? How are you doing? Are you okay? And they found that the worse off people were in society, the less they complained about their health. And this tracked all the way down to widows who in the 1940s in Bengal, after a famine, who were kind of socially left out to dry. This is a vision of absolute poverty. These people's health complaints totaled around 0%. They had learnt to live in acceptance of their deprivation. And to me, that sounds right. That sounds like how human nature works. Poverty makes you want less and ask for less because if you continue to want loads of things that you can't have, that's torture. So you learn to live cheerfully as you can in the reality you inhabit. While rich people, because they have loads of resources, are in a position to make lots of demands and want a lot of things. And those demands can be met by supply and demand, which dictates if you want something a lot, then your demand is high and supply will respond to that. It cares about what people want. It is agnostic about what people need, how certain things are necessary to function as a person. Water, shelter, soon healthcare. These are just goods interchangeable with a Mr. Tumble keychain or a lovely hat. How it helps you and how it might be needed for you to live a good life doesn't come into the equation. Only your desire can be tracked by utilitarianism. These natural laws of economics are supposed to be modeling human behavior, but instead they dictate it. If you're poor and you want something, you're not allowed to be cheerful. You are punished if you are cheerful because you want less, you are happy. You have to be desperate. You had better be prepared to beg for <laughs> If the only thing you have to sell is your labor, if you are, you know, if you are a member of the proletariat and the only thing you have to sell is your labor, but there's no demand for your labor and you're unemployed, basically the market is saying you deserve to starve. Like that's the rational conclusion. If you take, uh, basically what I'm talking about here is the real moralistic guy who is linked to the economics of neoliberalism is probably Robert Nozick, who's like a hardcore libertarian. Like he's talking about economics, but he's also like a political philosopher and a philosopher of justice. And he's a big guy critique of rules. 
But basically, the logical consequence of Nozick's argument is that if you don't have money, then yeah, it, it, that's your fault and you should starve. But he creates a hypothetical um, situation where mm. everyone starts off with like equal resources that like resets every now and then. Like, there's lo- loads of fucking holes in his argument. It exists entirely in hypothetical. And that, but this is the interesting thing, isn't it? Because capitalist economics exists entirely based on these hypotheticals and assumptions that seem intuitively correct. Supply and demand. If someone explains that to you, it sounds intuitively correct. The development of currency as a replacement for barter. It sounds and feels intuitively correct. But what actual scientists do and what actual materialist approaches to things do is they go, but is that right though? Shall we have a look? Oh no, it isn't. It's bullshit. So then we should reject it and not base our entire fucking global economic system on these ideas. Capitalism has always struggled to completely infiltrate the academy. And so the existence of economics as a propaganda machine allows it to place itself within there as a system of study. Like I did, I did, what was it? Like I did a Harvard open access course on macroeconomics. Mm. You know, it's a made up, it's a very synthetic made up subject because there's no kind of interdisciplinary learning. They go, assume these curves and we go, okay, like how would you put someone in the curve who's like, they're just grown up and they don't have any parents and they can't be supported in that way. Like how do they, how do Mm. they fit into this curve? And it's going, no, 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 no. We're just going to make some simplifying assumptions here. Assume everyone's got five units of currency. And it's like, oh, okay. So we're just talking like space physics, no friction, like bodies moving through space here. (laughs) And then like you, you're listening through and you're like, how could this ever be used to make something so granular? that you could use it to either predict something or model something in the real world. Like if systems... Well, they never have, have they? Then an economist would be able to give any accurate predictions about anything ever. We would have known all these recessions were coming, but everything everything in economics is like a post-hoc explanation that falls into a very vague, wishy-washy, unfalsifiable theory because the theory is based on so many like simplifying yeah. assumptions that if you were to go, well, why didn't this work? It goes, oh, well, this can't quite model for this because... Well, that's the thing is they have all these complex curves and diagrams and Laffer curve and all this shit. But then if you dig down to it, like you say, mm. the, the, it's based on these assumptions and they go, oh, well, don't worry about that because if, if if we think about that too much, none of this other stuff will work. And it's yeah, like, shouldn't that be yeah, an issue? Yeah, yeah. Shouldn't that be like a, isn't an that objection? A pro- isn't that a problem? <laughs> and that is why you've got Milton Friedman projecting stuff onto the past because if you can project stuff onto the past and say early humans might have had something resembling a currency, all that work's done for you because you're saying... Ah, but this is just kind of the way we built, right? This is just how it's Early how humans it's all had been. Mackies. He was a propagandist. That was his life's work. But it's it's still Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's yeah, so yeah. hard for like anyone to look back and really get their head around or like imagine a gift economy. Or even a feudal economy. Even a differently shit one. They're locked into this unique current form of exploitation and at the same time cannot speak about the thing at its fundamental beating heart which is the Mm. extraction of surplus value they'll completely ignore surplus value and they'll completely ignore the role of violence in upholding the market the modern market and modern capitalism developed alongside the modern state they're inextricably linked and they are enforced with violence 
the bourgeoisie's control of capital, of the means of production, distribution, exchange, was brought about by violence and is upheld by violence. The state was brought about by violence and is upheld by violence. And again, you will not see this fucking anywhere in these economics books because they will be talking about it as if it is a natural law, as if if, as if it's inevitable, mm. as if it's like the fucking mountains and the seasons. They have no curiosity about the history of how these things were brought about or a wider sociological exploration of how these various systems interact and function because if they spent a moment exploring it all of the fucking crazy assumptions that uphold their discipline would collapse because it isn't really a discipline because it's just a description of a, a hypothetical idealized version of capitalism that is about making excuses and making moral millionaires having three fucking super yachts mm. while people starve that is their profession it isn't actually about intellectual curiosity or explaining something or advancing human understanding of the world. It's about justifying the horrors of the world in which we live. I think a lot of people have ended up in a really muddled place where they know enough like stories of history. I'm not going to say like history, but like they know some of the big tales of history. Yeah, That's yeah, also yeah. interwoven in our media, which has like created pretty clear storytelling tropes of mm. like powerful people, especially corporations. They will try to exploit you and rinse you of everything. Mm. And it is okay for like Robocop to come in there and shoot down the bad robots and to like throw the bad CEO guy out of a window. <laughs> or it's okay for like Luke Skywalker yeah. to blow up the Death Star. How many people would have died in the Death Star? Like no one, he's never been reevaluated as a terrorist off the back of that, has he? But you get your sketches. You'll get a sketch of like uh, some stormtroopers going like, my buddy died on the Death Star. Yeah, you'll get like the Austin Powers joke of yeah. like the foreman's family being informed that they're, that unfortunately the primary breadwinner has been absolutely destroyed with a steamroller. But like, <laughs> but also like, I only really found out how much the suffragettes bombed people. <laughs> they were the fully suffragettes bombers. were hardcore, yeah. I didn't know that they referred to themselves as terrorists. Like, it's not even like an opinion to say they were yeah. terrorists. They'd be like, I'm a terrorist. I tried to bomb the fucking prime minister. I never knew about that stuff. But no one's condemning Luke Skywalker and no one's condemning the suffragettes, <laughs> right? They're like universally celebrated. But like in the now, someone kicks a van. People start crying for the van. There's vigils for the van. And you'll you'll and you've hit the nail on the head there with the suffragette Star Wars thing. It's like the story time version of history. They are disconnected from now, so they don't. Mm. It's like a different set of morals. And in and in story time and in the story time version of history, violence is acceptable. But in the now, like people imagine themselves, they go, "Ah, oh, I'd support Luke Skywalker. I'd join the rebellion." Or they go, "I'd support the suffragettes." And if you just transported mm. them. Back to the exact time, they'd be going, these suffragettes are outrageous. If they were applying the ethics that they apply now to contemporary yeah. 
Uh, but they uh, would have been saying resistance. back in like the, the 1910s, oh yeah, but I would have support one of those peasants' revolts, so I would have supported like yeah, I would yeah, have yeah, supported yeah. the anti corn law protests. I would have been with them on the front lines. But these suffragettes. Mm, mm. But it's that thing of the violence of the past, revolutions of the past as well. American Revolution was a liberal revolution, seen as acceptable and heroic. French Revolution, a little bit more violent, but still generally seen as acceptable by liberalism. The 1688 Glorious Revolution in England described as glorious because it's seen as less violent but like look at what william did in fucking ireland <laughs> that was a quite a violent revolution as well these things are all seen as acceptable for the things they brought about and so and it's the other the other thing as well is like the abhorrence of like violence and saying like oh you you don't defeat hate with hate falsely equates the violence of the state and capitalism and the violence of like the cops and the violence of aeroplanes dropping bombs with the violence of people resisting oppression the violence of like in indigenous people fighting for independence or workers fighting against fucking tyrannical bosses or whatever the, those things are not the same mm. just because you can describe them using the the dictionary word violence those things are not the same obviously as good socialists, we want to remove violence from the world and increase love and liberty and peace. However, the world as it is now was created by violence and is upheld and maintained by violence. So your pacifism in the face of that, mm, I am extremely dubious as to whether that is a any kind of moral high ground or strategically wise position. Oh, hello. Sorry, you've, um, you've a little bit caught me out here. I'm, I'm supposed to be researching cognitive dissonance and the betrayals of the admissibility of political violence, but, um, well, between you and me, that's a bit of a heavy subject, so I've been relaxing with a bit of Call of Duty instead. Oh boy, get his ass! Yeah. Yeah, I've got a terrorist in my scope. I'm gonna um, hit them with a uh, big dog. I'm gonna uh, drop a bomb on their head. Sorry, I'm still on voice chat. We're going down. We're not gonna. Mayday, mayday, we're going down. There is a place called the Now, where the road to liberation is paved by saying please and sir, while the police set their dogs on your candlelit vigil. And if you so much as knock over a bin, it will be likened to the sack of Rome by a thousand pearl clutching strips of salted pork. Violence, we're told, is radioactive. Violence poisons the heart of any who dare to touch it. That you must not hurt anyone ever is such a huge prescription, and it doesn't chime with all the other ways we experience or understand the world. Our art and storytelling culture doesn't contain so many tales that portray violence because violence looks cool. Although, it, I mean, it does. It does look cool. You know, someone doing a big jump or a spinning kick is cool. I'm not going to pretend otherwise, and I'm not going to talk down to you in that way. But telling a story about thwarting evil often necessitates on some level, some amount of violence. If the evil in your story can be thwarted by debate or a medium post or a 38 degrees petition, then are they evil? They sound pretty reasonable. It sounds like the moral core of your story is based on some kind of interpersonal misunderstanding. And if your protagonist does not perpetrate violence themselves, but instead defers to the police or the army or some legitimate use of force, then this is still fundamentally a story about violence. It's just changed who is perpetrating it. 
Storytellers and audiences understand this implicitly. Violence is just and reasonable when it is proportionate to suitably villainous behaviour. The incredible, fantastic Spider-Man cannot snap someone's neck for littering, but he can beat someone up for dressing as a rhino and running through the load-bearing architecture of an independent hairdresser. Outside of fiction, in the real, we are told that violence is wrong. And we know that because when people do violence, they go to prison and it is on the news. It is the state who upholds the legal and moral framework that declares the use of violence to achieve political aims reprehensible. And I'm going to say something now that might shock you. I agree with this. Violence is wrong. And the state makes a good point here. Dictionary alert. Oh, sorry. That's just my dictionary app giving me the word of the day. Alert. Sorry, let me just check this out. Um, what's it today? What? Wow. Wow. What's this? War. 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 And what does that mean? Um, oh my god. Oh. Oh, what? Hang on. Hang on, I need to go sit down. This doesn't mean... Just like the now, war is inoculated against any of these far-reaching moral claims about the admissibility of violence. You see people getting hot in the face about people breaking windows, but you never see any boomer memes decrying the 1945 bombing of Dresden. You can't kick a van, but you can sink the HMS Belgrano. You can't block a road, but you can profit from selling arms to Saudi Arabia. We're using them to blockade supplies to starving children in Yemen. But is it even worth intellectualizing about the case for violence if we know these aims can be achieved through non-violent means? After all, we know it's worked in the past. But that's it, that's true. Let's take a look at the big hitters of the case for non-violence. Mahatma Gandhi and the independence of India. First, an important contextual factor. In 1947, India achieved formal independence from a British empire that was very weak from its participation in World War II and its ongoing participation in the Arab-Israeli conflict. These conditions left the British empire less able to defend its stake in India's continued colonization and were themselves the result of violent armed conflict. Second, while Gandhi was an incredibly popular figurehead, he was nevertheless only one of many figures in a multiplicity of strategies used to achieve Indian independence. It is nevertheless no coincidence only Gandhi is a household name across the Commonwealth, whereas people such as militant leader Chandrasekhar Azad or revolutionary Shahad Bhagat Singh are whitewashed from the account. Gandhi was dealt with by the British Empire and given prominence because he was a preferable negotiating partner than the more radical alternatives. Finally, the Indian independence movement was not ultimately a success. Rather than being driven out, the British Empire chose to move from direct colonial rule to a form of neo-colonial rule. They dictated the time of transition of power, they were given the opportunity to destroy or remove documents and evidence of colonial crimes, they appointed their own successors, and they wrote the new constitution, laying down a framework of continued exploitation that damages India to this day. This is not a story of non-violent resistance leading to social liberation. Martin Luther King Jr. and the US Civil Rights Act. Similar to the Indian independence movement, while Martin Luther King's movement saw success, it was limited to ending de jure segregation and expanding the vanishingly small black middle class. It was a far cry from the full political and economic equality that were called for by a majority of the movement. And you don't need me to tell you, but these demands are still a long way away for black Americans living 60 years later. Similarly, King's installation as the singular figurehead has been used to whitewash more militant aspects of black liberation. Martin Luther King has a national holiday in his name, while 
many Black Panthers, for instance, have spent and continue to spend half a lifetime in prison. King's moderate demands were only accepted because of the spectre of more militant campaigns, as evidenced by the major riots that took place in the months leading up to the signing of the Civil Rights Act. The Iraq War. Uh, this was the largest peaceful protest in human history. It was a global protest. High-end estimates suggest 10 million people took part in this. This is like 0.15% of the global population in 2013. That is incredible. Um, and uh, it, it didn't do anything. You know, we, we, went to, uh, we went to Iraq. People um, holding up placards didn't stop us going to Iraq. Why, why would it? Why would that have stopped an army? And here's the kicker, an absolutist belief in pacifism at all costs really starts to pick up a racist edge when you universalize it into discussions about the struggles of black people, indigenous people, colonial subjects. Are we gonna suggest that the indigenous people of the Americas or Australia could have fought off their butchers with sit-ins and debate? Africans could have stopped their slavers with strongly worded petitions? When these arguments aren't denying people of colour the agency to resist oppression, it's asking them to wait patiently for some of the white middle classes to discover and bear witness to their cause so that something finally can be done. But until that time, they must endure brutality and economic servitude in patient martyrdom. And the same issues come up for female liberation. Women necessarily have to navigate a world in which they are less safe than their male counterparts in most public environments. This is the world in which the state not only fails to protect them from abuse, but actively participates in it. In 2018, it was reported that there are about four reports a week of domestic abuse from police officers in the UK, though the real number will be a lot higher when you consider unreported abuse, reported abuse that isn't logged, and the fact that a quarter of UK police forces refuse to comply with the freedom of information request that this data is based on. And by what right can anyone make any judgment about how any woman should react to their attacker, or by extension, the systems and institutions which protect and advocate their behaviour? If you want more information on these arguments, do check out the book How Nonviolence Protects the State by Peter Gelderloos. Now, this is not a call to arms. It's not me telling you guys to do violence. I don't want my phone tapped. This is just an academic text on cognitive dissonance. But if you do, uh, if you are despo for some clear takeaways, they are thus. Number one, it is not non-violence or bust. Some strategies that involve violence have their place in the multiplicity of tactics we should employ in the fight against repression and oppression. Accordingly, we should be skeptical about any claims that freedom and liberation from a repressive violent state can somehow be achieved by the exclusive use of passive and peaceful protest. Secondly, we should be extremely skeptical about those who moralize about violence while they themselves are the beneficiaries of a violent repressive state. And lastly, we should be extremely, extremely fucking skeptical about any policing of tactics and strategies from those who face the worst kind of oppression these states have to offer. And now, if you'll excuse me, I've had enough thinking about violence. It's time for me to just kick back and relax. Scanning for hostiles. Dropkick 2-3 on station. Let's kill them all this time. Target in the open. Eyes on target. There's a guy running. We got a runner. Smoke him. No KIA. Shots missed. Go again. No effect. Adjust your fire. Boom. Nice shot. Good kill. Direct hit. Good night. You ever been up in a cherry picker? I've never had any need to go up in a cherry picker. 
I've been up in a cherry picker in a few times. Obviously, I grew up on farms, so there was much, not necessarily actually cherry pickers, but similar use of things like using the uh, the bucket of a digger to get up high. Going up, you know, like when you see a, like a telegraph pole, like a phone pole, and it's got the the end of a, you know, it's got like little foot bits that poke out so you can, so if you have a ladder yeah. or you had a cherry yeah, yeah. picker, you get stuff it. Yeah, I just looked at that and thought, oh, it'd be good to get up there. I no, I'd be I'd be disorientated. I think there's a um, for me heights has an anti Goldilocks zone, yeah. right? Where there's like a little bit high up, which I mean, uh, like I've just gone up the stairs and looking out the window, I can handle yeah. that, right? But that is getting towards like <laughs> top top limit. But then if I'm up in like a plane, I'm like absurdly high up. Yeah. I can handle that again because it's like lost all context. I'm like I'm in another world. But anywhere. Like smack bang in the middle of those two heights, I, I will shit. I will go mad. I will scream until I taste blood. I, that is horrible to me. Well, okay, let me let me ramp up the stress element of it. So I was at a, an at like a counter protest for the EDL once. <laughs> we got ourselves in a pickle where one of my uh, comrades had, let's say, antagonised some of the uh, fash. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And we were we were engaged in in uh, let's call it a tactical retreat, but we went a stupid way, and then we ended up where a guy in a cherry picker was like, "I'll oh, just come in here." <laughs> What? Just coming this in. is a film. You're living in a film. And uh, well, it, no, no, it, no, it we, so, <laughs> it, it, so we got in the cherry picker and then went up to the top and then quite slowly right it's not okay it's not fast but you know fast enough and then like i don't know about 20 ish knobheads were like at the bottom of this cherry picker just like shouting at us you're going to imagine like oh they can shake the cherry picker but they can't it's quite you know like it's got like bits of fence around it and it's quite even if they got rid of it it's quite resilient so they were just like really angrily shouting at us I was, I was scared, you know, I was, I was relatively scared. But I'd then be once, very scared. But once you realise you are just like safe, apart from the thing of like, well, eventually we're going to have to go down. But the funniest bit of it was one of them tried to like throw a bottle at us, but you're throwing it up. Mm, so if you miss, yeah. <laughs> can you see, can you see what's going to happen? So I want you to totally throw it. Yeah, they threw a bottle <laughs> up at us, but it didn't hit us it didn't even hit the cherry picker it just got to its possible apex and then went back for a moment it would have been suspended you know for a moment yeah it wouldn't have been going anywhere (laughs) just suspended just for one moment and then it went back down and uh splatted a different guy Mm. not the guy who threw it but a different guy and then that guy got fuming and they started like going mental it. They were still shouting at us as if it was our fault. And then he gets more angry, but directs it at you because that's simpler. Or yeah. does he believe you just dropped it off of the cherry picker? They were just like hurt up and angry. So mm. I, maybe he did. You know what? I never thought that. I never thought that. Maybe he thought we threw it at him. Yeah. Because if his mate was behind him and threw it up, he didn't necessarily see that happen. And if and if you were his mate, you wouldn't then say, "Oh yeah, I threw that." <laughs> Well, that was me. Sorry, I mean, Paul. For a moment, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna yeah. empathise with the fascist, and I'm gonna try and work out what okay. was coming from his point yeah, of view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because about what he's feeling. If I am looking up and I have a political enemy and they are way above me, 
and then I'm hit by a projectile coming from way above me. Occam's razor would tell me yeah. that's where that's come from. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm not going to think someone else has thrown that at me via the sky, who is my <laughs> ally. It was really funny. It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. It sounds incredible. Oh, and the other downside of cherry pickers, I was another march I was on. I was holding the um, the NEU NUT at the times banner. Have you ever held the banner on a march? No. But I've held the banner at two marches. I held the Hezbollah flag on a Jim Larkin band march in Liverpool uh-huh. years ago. That's quite. That's like a one one man flag, and it's like a you got like a little kind of belt thing that the flag pokes into, distributes uh-huh. the weight, and then the this NUT banner was like, you know, there's two of us, there's one either side, because it's a it's banner, not a flag. That's the difference between them. But there's loads of, like, electric wires that are quite low-hanging, actually, all knocking around Manchester. So we were at the front of the march and kept having to get instructions from, like, stewards to, like, lower the banner. But that meant we had these big, like poles with sort of a spike on the end that we then in sync lower, which I imagine if you were, if we were approaching, it might look quite scary. Mm, the spears you know, it's like are out now. a spear. But yeah, yeah. it was because um, if we'd held it, we'd have got, I don't know if we'd got electrocuted, but we'd have got, definitely got like tangled in some. Or just damaged some infrastructure that yeah, just doesn't yeah. help anyone. No, no, no. You never see the fash doing stuff like that. You never see the fash being like having a steward who's, organizes when the what degree the flags are at at different times it's not that they don't have flags and symbols but they never have like health and safety attached to that well i think a lot of the flags they want to fly are much more problematic so they just often don't bring them or if they do bring them some of the other fashion like whoa 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 just just get a union jack yeah, whoa, 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 whoa. We, use, we just do the dog whistle. We don't just play like the yeah, pan pipes. Really, we just yeah. <laughs> put the tuba down. Yeah. We don't come out with a full brass section. We just, <laughs> we just play frequencies only we can hear. Hush, yeah, hush the ensemble. Yeah. You keep that in your front room above the TV. And then when someone questions you, you go, oh, I'm just really interested in World War II. Do you want to see, do you see this, uh, this knife with a cool insignia on it? I love eagles, but only when they're, like, <laughs> rendered into flags or made of stone. Eagles and two lightning bolts next to each other. Part of my love for Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> I like to imagine there were two Harrys. Mandatory Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our title theme was created by Ella Jean, with additional music from Sean Morley. That's this guy. Thank you to our listeners and to our Patreon subscribers and to the absolute diehards who bring up our talking points in the family WhatsApp group. You are all the true children of the revolution. Hong Kong, folks, and honk long. (laughs) 